Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their, their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of the Lord. So today, we are on the Eighth Commandment in our summer series on the Big Ten. And that Eighth Commandment says, you shall not steal. I don't know about you, but when God has a special lesson for me to... Sometimes God has special lessons for me to learn, and this was one of them, interestingly. You see, when Johnny asked me back in May to take this Sunday, he did not know that just a few days before that, we, for the first time in our lives, had been robbed uh, in our home. On May 17th, a reputable plumbing company uh, came in uh, to do several projects. They were there several hours in our home and uh, didn't think anything about it. But the next day, Georgie discovered that one of her diamond not one of her, her diamond ring, <laughs> was missing out of her jewelry box. And uh, that was a ring, a family heirloom, that her mother had given her when she completed her master's uh, studies at Johns Hopkins University. So it meant a lot to us. Um, later, we discovered a silver, silver, silver ladle was also missing, which had been sitting in the dining room. The culprit was the young assistant, not the seasoned plumber that we knew, uh, who was with him, and police discovered later that he was wanted for larceny in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Um, Fairfax County police detectives were able to recover the silver ladle at a pawn shop in the area, but we don't have any hope of ever seeing the diamond ring again. Now, if you're like me, you're sitting there thinking, oh, that's terrible. I would never do anything like that. I hope you wouldn't, but at the same time, I want us to look a little deeper. In fact, uh, you're in good company if you say that because 90% of evangelical Christians say they've never broken the Eighth Commandment. Okay, fair enough. Well, our church, Christ Church Vienna, is part of a network of about 1,000 churches in the Anglican Church in North America. And about a year ago, they published an excellent new catechism what Christians believe. Now, to be honest, I always thought catechisms were just dusty, dry textbooks you had to read to become a church member. But this is really a 
good, good production. And a catechism is simply a series of questions and answers explaining what we believe as Christians. And in fact, I brought a stack of them. They're on the info table if you're interested in looking at it or maybe purchasing one. But one of the questions unpacking this Eighth Commandment in the Catechism says this. What says this? What, what things other than property can you steal? I can steal reputation, wages, and honor, credit, answers, and inventions, friendship, hope, and goodwill from others. I must repay and to the best of my ability restore what I have stolen. Gulp. So who among us has never cheated by stealing an answer on a test or talking about someone behind their back, marring their reputation or taking credit for an idea or accomplishment that was really someone else's? People steal from government regularly by underpaying their taxes. Companies steal from their employees when they require more time than you were contracted to work, or a reorganization that gives you more to do, but at the same salary. Today's Old Testament reading in Leviticus states clearly, you shall not steal, but it also goes on and says, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You see, in that day, people lived from day to day, literally, and if they weren't paid at the end of the day, they might go hungry that night. But the flip side is also true. Employees can steal from their employers, stealing time, long coffee breaks, surfing the internet during work hours, calling in sick when you need a day off, or padding your expense account, or having office supplies that just happen to end up at your home. We are all thieves. In 1922 and 23, there was a major spiritual revival in Belfast, Ireland. Converted shipyard workers brought back so many tools and other equipment that they had pilfered that one company, literally it was reported in the newspaper, had to build a new storage shed to hold all this equipment. Um, one way their faith revived itself was, in the words of the Catechism, I must repay and to the best of my ability restore what I have stolen. The Old Testament also condemns stealing through false weights and measures. The modern equivalent would be overpricing goods and services. This happens in many ways, but one way is payday lenders in our country. I, I, not as part of the preparation, I was just looking, reading some stuff, and I ran across an article about a Texas church trying to help an impoverished family. This family, they discovered, had taken out a payday loan of $700 and had agreed to pay $200 back twice a month every paycheck. But the way it was set up, it would take them a year to pay back this loan totaling, if they had paid it off in a year, $5,200. That's an, that's an annual interest rate of 740%. Or another a poor grandmother in Richmond was paying 300% annual interest on a payday loan. All profiteering and overcharging is theft. It's easy for us to point the finger at 
those guys or those companies that do this. But how often do we find ourselves justifying or rationalizing our behavior? <laughs> Two weeks ago, I was in Inova Fairfax with my mother visiting uh, one of her friends in the senior living community where she, where she lives. It was lunchtime after the visit, so we decided to stop and, and eat there in the cafeteria. We ordered two drinks and two burgers, and as we were walking to the table, I, my mind's going, okay, that costs this much. I'm, and I looked at the receipt, and they'd only charge us for one drink. So my mind starts rationalizing. Well, one drink's no big deal. I mean, this place overcharges anyway. And it's, it's, it's just too much trouble to go back and stand in line. So I sat there eating. And when I went back for a second burger, <laughs> I did tell them and pay for that drink. But we are all thieves by nature. It's scary sometimes how I find myself thinking. Behind this command not to steal is the right of ownership. Throughout the Old Testament, God gave his people land and possessions that could be bought or sold or inherited. Adam and Eve were given the garden as their home to cultivate and care for it and cause it to flourish. They had property. It's part of God's design that we possess and enjoy material things. Every culture across the centuries has affirmed ownership and punished stealing. There are three bas basically three ways we can think about money and possessions. And I like how Jerry Bridges in his book, Discipline of Grace, um, summarizes this. The first attitude, what's mine, what's yours is mine. I'll take it. Of course, that's the attitude of the thief. Second attitude, what's mine is mine. I'll keep it. And since we are selfish by nature, that's where most of us live most of the time. Okay, that's our default setting. The third attitude, what's mine is God's, I'll share it. That's the attitude of the biblically informed believer who wants to follow Christ. The negative side of the, of the Eighth Commandment is very clear, do not steal. But the positive side is equally important. The biblical view of money and possessions is that while I own something by human law, I'm actually just holding it as God's trustee. I am to use it and care for it as a steward, not to build my own kingdom, but to advance God's kingdom. Sergio is the head custodian here at Madison High School, and he does great work. He also happens to be a committed believer, and he's been a great friend to our church the last three or so years, three and a half years we've been here. He has a huge responsibility for a large facility. He controls the heating and air conditioning and lighting. He mows the athletic fields. He has keys to all the doors. He sets up for special events like our church. Um, but what if this important job went to his head and Sergio began to, began to act like he owned all this? He started taking equipment home or selling on the internet or treating other custodians fairly or telling teachers, started bossing teachers around. I would bet you he wouldn't be here very long. In the same way Sergio is accountable to Fairfax County Public Schools, you and I are accountable to God for all he has entrusted to us. I am just a steward. I don't own things for my own purposes, but I've received them for, from God to use for his purposes. 
I cannot use them however I please. I am to manage what I have according to the master's intentions. Good stewardship means taking care of what we've been given, not letting it fall into disrepair and even improving it. Okay, that may mean investing money to earn more, as in the parable of the talents that Jesus told in the New Testament. Or it might mean bringing about a sense of order, as with a messy room or a messy office. My wife can tell you about messy offices at home. Okay. Um, or it may be creating beauty, as in a garden. And many of you know I like to garden. Um, stewardship means not being wasteful. Also, we need to take care of things. We also not, need not to waste things. Philip Ryken's book, Written in Stone, has helped shape some of my thoughts in this sermon about you shall not steal and about not being wasteful. He says, whenever we squander money we could, that could better be spent on something else, we are guilty of a kind of theft. This is one of the problems with gambling, which has become one of the most common ways of breaking the Eighth Commandment. I did a quick Google search just on this topic, and in 2013, which is the latest year that stats are available, we Americans lost 119 billion, that's B, billion dollars in gambling, and spent 66 billion dollars on lottery tickets. More than was spent on food and clothing combined. It's amazing to me, and not what I would call wise stewardship. So good stewardship means taking care of what we've been entrusted. It also means working hard. The book of Proverbs has many verses warning us against laziness and also extolling diligence. In his letter to the Ephesian church, Paul instructs believers this way. He says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. <clears throat> Evidently, there were thieves in that early church in Ephesus. And he says, work not just to meet your own needs, but to be able to share with those in need as well. And so this other aspect of good stewardship is sharing what God has given us so others will have what they need. This begins with our own families, of course. And we all, to be honest, wrestle with what do they need and what do they want? What do I need? What do I want? I'm not going to go there this morning. But we see over and over in Scripture also that God has a heart for those in need. He has a heart for the poor. This is reflected in, some, in Leviticus 19, which we read today, where we see a form of welfare. He, you may recall he said, when you reap your land, don't reap right up to the edges. When you gather grapes, don't take them all. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So he's telling farmers at harvest time to leave some grain on, in the field and leave grapes in the vineyard so that the poor and those who might be just passing by, um, strangers, would have some sustenance. As a church, we care about the poor, and I was amazed when I sat back and thought about it that we support the poor in many ways. Through our giving here on Sunday morning, we're able to help people around locally and around the world. 
For example, we give food and money and time. Some of you are very involved with the committee, with the Lamb Center and the Committee for Helping Others, which serve the poor in the Vienna and Fairfax areas here. Just FYI, CHO will also pick up furniture that you might want to donate, and they then will give it to needy families. A lot of people don't know that part. They do food and clothing, but also furniture. Um, yeah, internationally. We contribute significantly to international justice mission. That was started 20 years ago by a Department of Justice human rights lawyer who was a member of the Falls Church where I was attending. I, I knew Gary. Um, IJM helps rescue people from slavery and sex trafficking in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. CCV also generously uh, supports Five Talents, an Anglican mission which is currently helping over 80,000 poorest of the poor, mostly women, as it turns out, to start their own businesses to meet their families' needs. And then every week, all the cash offerings in our collection plates go to Anglican Relief and Development Fund for emergency relief and food and clean water and education projects that they're involved in. We who follow Christ are called to generously give to the poor, but also to the church and to other gospel outreaches. When we talk about giving, the heart of the issue is our motivation and our attitude. Too often people give because of pressure, external pressure for the pulpit, sometimes trying to guilt people into giving, or internal pressure because you feel obligated or because the guy next to you is putting something in the plate and you don't want to look bad, okay? Um, another common motivation is, is in giving is pride, to impress the person beside you or church leaders or to get on God's good side, whatever it might be. That's what Jesus warned us about in the passage from the Sermon on the Mount we read where he said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Um, hypocrites, uh, you know, do this in the synagogues, in the streets, that they might be praised by others. He says, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing, and your giving might be in secret. Just so you know, here at Christ Church Vienna, um, only our church treasurer and the counting team know who is giving or what they're giving. Johnny nor I, any of the other leadership know that or want to know that. On the other hand, don't expect to be, get your praise from us for how much you're giving because we don't know, okay? It just ain't going to happen. Um, yeah. The motivation and attitude in our giving is important. People often ask the question, of course, well, what, what's the Bible standard? What, what's the norm for me to give as a, as a believer? In the Old Testament, God's people were expected to give 10%, at the tithe, we call it, and also to give offerings on top of that at special occasions. In fact, once the prophet Malachi rebuked God's people, he said, you are robbing God because you're not bringing in your tithes. How's that for motivation, you know? Um, but in the New Testament, there is no standard of tithing for Christians. In fact, there's, tithing's not mentioned in the writings of the early church fathers either. Rather, Christians are told not to give in the New Testament. Not to give if you are under any sense of obligation. Rather, we are told to give only out of a cheerful heart 
out of a willing heart because that's what we feel before God he wants us to do. And cheerfully in response to God's grace. God's grace is our motivation for giving. Everything I have is from God, is because of God, and belongs to God. It's an expression of his grace. I could have been born in Juba, South Sudan. I could have been born in the slums of Manila, the Philippines. But no, I was born in Huntington, West Virginia, in the United States of America. I am more than blessed. That's an expression of God's grace, that I had no, nothing to do with that. What I have, what I'm doing, is an expression of his grace. It's on loan to me for what is just the blink of an eye in light of eternity. And that's why Jesus warned his followers in the Sermon on the Mount again, as we read a little further on in Matthew 6, verse 20. He says, do not lay up yourself, for yourselves treasures. Don't lay up yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth, moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he goes on and says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and material possessions or money or things. The battleground is our hearts here between God and between possessions. He's given us things to enjoy, whether they're homes or handbags, whether they're shoes or shotguns, whether they're gardens or, you know, games. But these things can always vie for our primary attention and affection. Jesus says that our heart follows our money, not the other way around. When that was pointed out to me a while back, I thought, whoa, what? In other words, there's a, there's a profound spiritual truth here. When I give to God, it helps break my hold on material possessions. My heart follows my money. That is, my heart draws closer to the king when I'm involved in giving to his kingdom and also then, when I end up having to trust him, and sometimes it's more obvious than other times, to make the rest of what I earn or what I have go further. Because I've chosen to give this much to him, this much is left. I need to trust him to make it all make ends meet. So the Eighth Commandment challenges us in relationship to possessions and money. We in this materialistic West need to be challenged. At least I know I do. I think too often about how much something costs or how much is being saved or how much is being wasted. Georgie can testify to that. Um, I have this mentality. I'm always thinking money and material things and costs. Giving strikes a blow at my materialism. As pastor and author Kent Hughes points out, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. 
Let me read that again. I really like this. Every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. So you probably thought coming in here today, hmm, the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. This will be an easy one. I confess that I thought that as well until I began working on this sermon. Well, you may be sitting there thinking, I need to make restitution. Perhaps something's come to mind, a person, a situation, and I encourage you to do it. Don't put it off. Or perhaps you're thinking, I want to be more generous. And I want to learn what grace-motivated giving means, what that's all about. I encourage you to go for it. And, and perhaps ask somebody else to join you in that journey of understanding grace-motivated giving, joyful, generous giving. None of us wants to be found stealing through wrong-taking or wrong-keeping. I don't know about you, but I had no idea there was so much in these Ten Commandments, the past eight, this is the eighth week that we've been, been looking at them, or how relevant they are. Think about it. We've been talking about power, family, balance in life, anger, sex, money. I mean, these are the nitty-gritty issues of life. And if I'm honest... I cannot keep even one commandment in all its integrity. And I'll wager you might feel the same way. These commandments confront me with my sin. I'm guilty. I need the gospel. And that gospel of grace tells me Jesus took my guilt on the cross. He became sin for me. He, he effectively became a thief. And he who became a thief for me was crucified between two thieves, as you might recall. One of them said to the other hanging there, we are justly accused, we're justly condemned for our wrongdoing. But this man, pointing to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then he appealed to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus gave that thief the same answer he gives any of us who realize, who realize our wrongdoing and turn to him. He said, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. He forgave that thief and assured him of eternal life. And Jesus extends that same offer to us thieves today. Please pray with me. Father God, we confess that we are all thieves. 
by our wrong taking and our wrong keeping. Lord Jesus, thank you for becoming sin for us and dying a criminal's death with two thieves. Holy Spirit, might you strengthen our grasp of grace and make us generous and cheerful givers to meet the physical and spiritual needs of people around us locally and globally. We pray in your strong name, Lord Jesus. Amen.